0: I became just like completely fixated on one thing, which was ending up in California working for Apple on the Macintosh. Be careful. <laughs> Be careful what you think of people, because uh, they may end up changing the world. The joke that we think was very, very accurate um, about Apple was it was the only place in the world where a vote of 1,000 to 1 is a tie. So we're super excited to have Tom here, Tom Conrad from Pandora. I've heard this guy uh, speak at, at Stanford, and I a lot of my friends heard him at Premium Summit, and it was an awesome, an awesome, awesome talk. <laughs> like, juicy stories. He's got just such a rich experience of so much stuff that he's done. You know, at Apple, where he was just starting his career, he's got... What the hell I'm you doing there? documentum right? Going through that and building that product up and weaving millions of dollars of potential <laughs> stock and options and going off to startpets.com, where oops. you know. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. They, like, biggest it. oops <laughs> ever. Took that through IPO, threw that off the cliff, and then Pandora. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think we drove it into the cliff. <laughs> You know? I think You kind of have to get the Russian translation <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, then, and then Pandora, of course, uh, taking that, uh, having a vision for it, and taking it to what we all know today So I invited him over here to share some of his lessons learned from all these experiences With that, let's welcome Tom to Zerkobox <laughs> to, uh, Hi, uh, uh, I'm Tom um, and uh, I, uh, I've been doing this for I guess God, it's been almost 20 years. Um, I uh, I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, and um, when I was I think I was I must have been 15 years old was the that original um, 1984 ad for the Macintosh during the Super Bowl. And um, I really do remember that ad like it was yesterday. It's remarkable I was watching the Super Bowl at all because I'm, like, then and now, like, the like the, the tiniest, most insignificant sports fan in the world. Um, but somehow I was watching the Super Bowl at 15, and that ad, ad came on. And... Uh, uh, I just remember thinking um, that, that, that that the Mac was, not even knowing what it was, like going to be this huge, momentous thing to the point that I went and like the next day they had a full-page ad in the Columbus newspaper um, for the Mac. And um, uh, I tore it out of the newspaper and I found it when I was home with my parents a couple weekends ago. I can't believe that like, I, like you know, back when I was 14 years old, um, pulled that ad out of the paper. Um, but that was definitely um, uh, pretty consistent with what happened to me the next um uh, six or seven years because I became just like completely fixated on one thing which was ending up in California working for Apple on the Macintosh and um, people would be like what do you want to be when you grow up and I'd be like I want to work at Apple um, <laughs> and uh, uh, it was like that precise um, and like I, I mean I went to college not to get a degree but because I wanted to work for Apple and like so like the whole so so I went to University of Michigan studied computer engineering and and um, uh i um uh in my after my uh, junior year i uh applied for an internship at apple one thing i remember about that period was that after my sophomore year um there was this guy um who got an internship at apple um and the way michigan works is there's a computer science school and a computer engineering school and they're completely separate and um Uh, the way I viewed it at the time was if you were a computer scientist you had to take a foreign language and if you were a computer engineer you had to take um, electrical engineering and I thought the electrical engineering sounded easier than taking a foreign language. <laughs> um, turns out I'm almost certainly wrong about that, because I was like the world's worst electrical engineer. The worst. Um, but I survived my EE e classes. Um, but anyway, so there was the computer science kids, and there was the computer engineering kids, and there were two separate campuses, and there were two separate like, computing labs, and I worked in the computing lab for the computer engineering school. It was my kind of like you know, job to help pay for college. And there was a whole bunch of us, and we were kind of like a little nerd click. And then there was another little nerd clique that, that ran the computer science thing. It was like a little bit of a rivalry between these two groups. And so there was this guy um, uh, that was in the computer science program and worked in the computer science um, little nerd clique. And um, he was a year older than me, and he got this, this internship at Apple when I was a sophomore. And I remember thinking, like, this like doofus. Got this you know like uh, the internship like I, like i can 't i mean i don 't know how could they hire him because like we had this whole nerd rivalry thing between the two groups, uh, and it was, seemed impossible to me that they would want someone from the computer science program um, and uh, so uh, here 's what you need to know about that person. that person is Tony Fidel, who invented the iPod <laughs> 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 um, so I think definitively not a doofus. Um, uh, so I guess the lesson there is something about be careful, <laughs> be careful what you think of people, uh, cause they may end up changing the world. Um, so, uh, um, uh, so I don't remember Tony very well, unfortunately, but I do remember thinking that, um, uh, so let's see. I, um, so I, so my, um, how did this happen? I wrote this cover letter to Apple that just kind of, um. Went on and on and on about how I wanted to, you know, I'm really I wanted to work it out my whole life, and like I wanted to change the world through computers and all this really dorky stuff, and um, mailed it off to somebody that I knew there, um, and managed to get this internship. I think just on the strength of the cover letter. I don't remember interviewing for it, um, and uh, so I go off to go off drive my dad's car across the country, um, and uh, end up at Apple as an intern, and and um. The best thing about, about that story is that my, by the time I got to California, the driver's side door of my dad's car wouldn't open anymore. So I spent the entire summer, like, climbing over the console and getting out the passenger side door, <laughs> which is really awesome on a date. <laughs> 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 um, oh, no, I'm not opening the door for you. I'm just getting in. <laughs> Never, I've never made that joke before. That's, that's that's I can write that one down. That's a good joke. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, let's see. Um, uh, so um, anyway, I had a really great experience at Apple um, that summer, and then um, when I left. The team that I really most wanted to work on, I'd worked on, like, the graphics engine um, for the, the Macintosh OS uh, Quickdraw. And um, what, what I really wanted to do is I wanted to work on stuff that had a user interface to it. And you know, at the time, like, the big thing that Apple did that had a user interface was the Finder, the kind of the core user experience of the Macintosh when you boot it up. And um, that was a really, really small team. It was, like, seven people. And so by my, like, last day at Apple of my internship, I went and found the manager of that group, and I'm like, you know, I was an intern here this summer, and I really, really want to work on the finder when I graduate. It's the only thing I want to do in the whole world, you know. If you have any positions, you know, nine months from now, I really want to talk to you about it. Um, So go back to school, finish my degree, um, and uh, uh, in in the spring, I get a call from this hiring manager, and he says, it's your lucky day. Uh, the college recruiting department just called and said that if I could hire someone today, I'd get an extra hire, hiring, like, wreck. Um, but if I can't find somebody today, uh, then I lose the wreck. Um, uh, so do you want to come work on the Finder when you graduate from college? And I'm like, uh, did I just get a job at Apple without interviewing? <laughs> um, and he's like, you know, I've asked around, seemed like he did a good job last summer, blah, blah, blah. So I um, – uh so I got this job and so I'm finishing up school. Um last couple of months <clears throat> I promise not to go into this much detail every year of my life, but uh, this early stuff is all sort of funny because <laughs> I was so ridiculous. Um and uh so I'm finishing up um I'm finishing up my degree and I had worked at CompuServe as a like when I was a kid this was in Columbus and I did little programming things there and stuff during the summers. And um I was a CompuServe user, and they have all these forums and discussion boards and stuff, and they had one that was all about the Macintosh. And um, because I had no judgment at all, I decided to post on this CompuServe discussion board uh, you know, I just got a job at Apple, I'm going to go work on the Finder, you know, next year. That probably would have been not very wise in and of itself. But I also said, if you have any ideas about how to make the Finder better, I'd love to hear them. <laughs> and um, so this th- thread became, like, the longest thread in the history of the Macintosh forums, like, thousands and thousands of messages of suggestions, and it was, like, kind of became this big deal on CompuServe. And then, um, at the time, there was this magazine called Mac Week, which is like kind of the, God, I don't even know what to compare. It's like the tech crunch of the Macintosh world back then. as was a print magazine. And as a weekly, yeah, hence the name, Mac Week. Um, and uh, so they they uh, they sent a, a, they had a reporter call me to talk about this thread on CompuServe and all the feedback that I had gotten and stuff. And, um, uh, and then they sent a photographer to Ann Arbor to take a picture of me. Um, and it was, the, you know, um, I will give you one piece of advice from this, um, which has come in handy a number of times in my career. Never, ever, ever let them photograph you with a prop. Not ever. Every ridiculous picture you ever see of some tech exec is like, you know, it's Kevin Rose in headphones and it's, you know, the, you know, Dennis from Foursquare wearing the crown. And in this case, it was me throwing an apple into the air <laughs> and waiting, <laughs> waiting to catch it. Okay. Ridiculous. Um... So this, so I, I realized, like, after the photographer has come and all this has happened, I'm like, oh, this is bad. Like, I haven't even started yet. I didn't even interview for the job. And here I am, this, like, dorky 21-year-old kid, you know. Um, I'm sure the guys on the Finder team, the rest of the team, are like, what the fuck? Like, this is, you know, like, who is this guy? Um, so somehow I survived that. Um, but, uh, um, I, I, oh boy, um, uh, so that's what I was like when I was 21. Um, so I worked at the, I worked at, at at Apple on the, uh, on the Finder for, for another three years, um, and had a really great experience, but the, the thing that, Apple's a wonderful place. I mean, it was full of, I mean, just really the smartest people I think that, um, I should say, out of respect for the other people I've worked with since, some of the smartest people I've ever worked with. Um, uh, And I was certainly, you know, I I felt like I was always the dumbest guy in the room. Um, I remember when I was an intern, I spent the entire summer overusing the word orthogonal, but I pronounced it orthogonal every time. Pretty awesome. Um, uh, And um, at any rate, dumbest guy in the room. And uh, uh, Apple was great. But the challenge at, at that time, this was kind of before Steve came back, and um, the joke that we think was very, very accurate um, about Apple was it was the only place in the world where a vote of a thousand to one is a tie, and, um, and that is really how it worked. Like, we, like We'd get in a room this many people, and we'd have some discussion about something we wanted to do to you know improve the Mac or change the user experience or something and every single one of us would agree on some p- potential direction and then there would be you know one guy you know dimitri here would like have like some point of view that was counter to the rest of, of everyone in the room and like like you know dimitri would be like a really smart guy and we would all think like oh boy i don't know maybe we should maybe we're all wrong maybe Dimitri's right. Um, uh, actually, I remember one particular example of this. <clears throat> There's a bunch of people that had come together to talk about drag-and-drop semantics. Like, you pick an icon up and you move it from here to here, um, like, one window to another window. What should the behavior be? Should it be, uh, uh, should it be a move or should it be a copy? Um, and on the Mac, and actually on computers to this day, it's actually n- often not consistent. You know, you drag a file... You know, from one folder to another, it's a move. You drag it from one disk to another, it's a copy. And there were people at Apple who were troubled by this lack of consistency and that it would be far better if it was always one thing or another. Well, just thinking it through a little bit, it can't always be a copy, right? Because if you just, like, nudge the icon to the right by an inch in the same folder, you don't want it to duplicate. So you can't make the consistent behavior be copy. So there were there were literally people who thought the consistent behavior should be delete, which would mean <laughs> if you take your expense report and you drag it into an email and send it to someone it would delete it from your hard drive because it's always a move and so we were having this conference this debate this vigorous debate about this behavior in a meeting maybe about 15 people and um <clears throat> uh, uh there was a there was a, a guy a kind of a white beard um you kind of at Apple, we see the guys with the white beard. Now, today, you'd think they work in the Linux kernel. Then, you'd think they came from Xerox Park. And um, <laughs> uh, uh, so, there's this, you know, Xerox Park white-bearded guy um, who was um, uh, arguing pretty, you know, uh, passionately for it should always be it should always be a copy. I'm um, sorry, it should, uh, uh, it should always be a move rather. And that the first time you accidentally emailed your expense report and lost the copy of it, you would learn to do the special gesture that meant copy. Like, it would just be, you would learn, like, hold down the control key and it's a copy. Um, And uh, uh, I thought that was ridiculous, um, despite the fact that this guy seemed, you know, very Xerox park like and um, 40 years older than me. Um, And I had got this really, really vigorous debate with him, and uh, uh, we left the room and... I'm walking down the hall with the, the other guys with me, and I'm like, who the hell is the guy with the white beard? And the, and the guy next to me goes, oh, that's, that's so-and-so. He, he invented the icon. <laughs> this guy literally invented icons at Xerox Park, it turns out. <laughs> and I'm like, here I am, little tadpole Tom Conrad having this fight with him. I still think I was right. Um, but anyways, that was the kind of endless debate we get into at Apple, and it was not the, not the best part about Apple. I think actually in many ways the thing that's great about the new Apple is that Steve is back, and they just don't vote on things anymore, or it's, you know, you know, <laughs> you know, or it's, maybe it's still like a vote of a 1,000 to 1, like the 1 always wins, like I don't know what it is, but it's definitely very different, and I think that's the Apple needed a tiebreaker, and I think that's part of what the genius of Steve coming back is. Um... So because of that problem and and a handful of others, like, despite all these brilliant people, we didn't ship very much software at Apple. In fact, I wrote, um, if uh, if you guys are Macintosh users, you you know about spring-loaded folders. Um, So I wrote uh, spring-loaded folders my third week at Apple. I'm the the inventor of spring-loaded folders. I use that on dates, too. Um, (laughs) uh, at any rate, um, that actually kind of works with this on a certain kind of date. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, so, uh, so I invented spring-loaded folders, um, my, like, my third week at Apple. Wrote all the software, um, funny little design story about that. When you, like, mouse, o- when you pick up an icon and you mouse over a folder and it's about to spring open, the little, the, the icon, like, blinks three times and then it opens. Um, well, it blinks three times because at two in the morning when I was doing the, the first implementation of it, um, I'm like I'm not a graphic designer. I'm a bit of an interaction designer, but I'm not a graphic designer. And what I really wanted to happen is I wanted the folder to animate open, but I couldn't do that. All I could do is blink it three times when I knew how to write the software that would blink it three times. So I wrote the software that blinked three times. Wrote down in my little you know, you know engineering notebook like get designers to design you know opening animation. Well, that never happened. Um, and so they still blink to this. They still blink three times to this day, um, despite the fact they completely rewrote the feature when they rewrote the Finder, not once but twice since I left. So. Um, uh, be careful what you put in as a placeholder because it might survive for 20 years. Um, uh, so uh, but I, so I stated I wrote that feature in my second week at Apple. I stayed for three years. It hadn't shipped. I left. It was two years after I left. It was five years after I wrote that code that it shipped. So um, it was just really hard to work at a place where, you know, I wanted to work on something where the pace was faster. Um, and so I went, I was at this... Um, I was at a conference, I was sitting at a table um, with a bunch of people, and um, uh, um, we got to talking, and um, uh, I, when I got home, we got a call from one of them, they said, well, um, uh, hey Tom, we all thought you were great, we're working on this video game, um, it's kind of like a quiz show, party game thing. Um, we'd like you to come in and, you know, work on the game if you want to do something different. And that sounded pretty appealing to me because in video games, you know, they come out like every six or seven months and it was much, much faster pace. And, um, so that game turned out to be um, this video game called You Don't Know Jack, um, which I worked on for uh, several years and was sort of technical director for all of the, the various um, iterations of that franchise. And um, I think for me, the the big lesson about that change was that at Apple, um, Apple's culture is such that the people who are kind of held up and rewarded and admired are people that are kind of you know Renaissance men who who like can do um, you know a little bit of the, a little bit of user interface design, a little bit of interaction design, and, and a little bit of programming, and have great business sense, and have you know input on how the product should be marketed, and like kind of the the more of a generalist you are the better you do at apple um and um i like all that stuff and so i was perfectly happy for 3 years to kind of flip from one activity to another m- meddling in you know one aspect after another of the product um and um but the downside to that was i wasn't i wasn't really great at anything when i left apple i certainly wasn't a great programmer that's for sure um and uh, when I got to, to Berkeley Systems, um, who made You Don't Know Jack, the, the environment was really, really different. I mean, they had a team of people whose sole job was kind of gameplay design. All that group did was design the gameplay. There's another group of people who all they did was write the questions and, the, like, the comedy bits and record the audio. And there was another group who just did the graphic design. Like, how do we take this gameplay and turn it into something beautiful? And then there was a development team whose job was to take all of those assets and, you know, make really high quality, really efficient, really well-tested code, and get it done on time. And my job was to um, lead that team of of developers and actually write a lot of the software myself, too, in the early part. Um, And that was, like, a total and complete change for me. Suddenly, sure, I had the opportunity to express an opinion about some of these other things, but at the end of the day, I wasn't going to be judged on how much of a contribution I made in those other areas. Um, I was really going to be solely judged on, you know, is the software high quality? Is it, you know, bug free to ship on time? Are the other engineers happy? Do you hire the right people? That kind of thing. And, um, uh, and I'm actually, I feel incredibly lucky that I, I just by happenstance ended up in an environment like that because it really let me get good at programming in a way that I don't think I ever would have been, you know, had I not, um, had I not left Apple. Um, and, uh, and so, Despite the fact that I am a bit of a generalist, ever since I've tried, as I've had the opportunity, to be one of the people that kind of shapes the the culture of the organizations I've been, I really prize this kind of thing of of kind of, sure, the doors are always open, sure, people can have input to things, but I think it's really important to... um, you know, to create an environment where people know what their job is, people are judged, you know, primarily on being really, really exceptional at that one thing rather than kind of encouraging every single person to be kind of a, you know, corporate gadfly that that kind of gets involved in in everything. And certainly that that can work. Um, uh, um, In fact, it might in some cases be the common Silicon Valley culture. But um, I think it's really helped Pandora in particular that we have this much more kind of – you know, our business development people are, like, the best in the world at business development, and our engineers are the best in the world at writing software, and our interaction designers are, you know, the best in the world at interaction design, and everybody knows their job, and we're all friendly and stuff, but at the end of the day, we kind of know where where the buck stops. Um, so, at any rate, I had this tremendous, I had this great experience at, at Berkeley Systems on You Don't Know Jack, um, particularly because it's really when I became a programmer, um, and, um, uh, and it was really fun to have this. This at the time, the You Don't Know Jack was pretty well known and, and a, a bit of a phenomenon. It's uh, amazingly, I think this holiday season, You Don't Know Jack for PlayStation three hundred and sixty or you know for Xbox, PlayStation, and Wii is coming out. Which I mean, it's almost twenty years ago that we put the first version of this game out, and I can't believe they're still making versions of it. Thankfully, I. Uh, It was actually part of the reason that I left after a couple of years. It was like the writing was on the wall that, like, you could make a a career out of doing You Don't Know Jack sequels. And after a while, you know, it just got to be too much of the same. Um, And so um, I I think the other thing that happened, which is uh, maybe a little bit of a cautionary tale, was the consumer stuff that I had done to that point in my career, which was six or seven years at that point, I, I, I felt like oh gosh I'm getting pretty good at this and it's really not that hard like I understand how it works. The stuff that I don't understand is all this kind of fancy server side engineering stuff. Um, and a friend of mine was starting a company um, uh, that was kind of it was a kind of a search technology um, and uh, um, kind of fancy conceptual indexing. It could take we could take the documents and figure out like not just what they said but what they were about. Um, so you could have an article that talked about Puget Sound and the Space Needle and Microsoft and this technology could be like, oh, this document's about Seattle, even if the word Seattle never appeared in the document. Um, and so I went off to do that, um, largely because I thought it was like, going to be hard and challenging in a way that, um, uh, um, the consumer stuff maybe wasn't so much anymore I thought was starting to lose some of its luster. And I guess th- I learned two things in that, um, Experience, which lasted another couple of years. Um, uh, the first was was that yeah, yeah, it wasn't particularly harder; it was just different, you know. And, and 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 I actually think that there's I think there's a lot of kind of like tech elitism in our industry. It's like, oh, this kind of software is easy, and this kind of software is hard, and those engineers over there are the ones that you know. Um, are the most valuable, and these guys are kind of replaceable, and um, I think it's just a bunch of bullshit. I I think, you know, I I, I think it's all kind of hard, it's all kind of easy, and, you know, looking for ways to keep the culture kind of, you know, uh, respecting the the contribution that everyone makes is something that I've really tried to do um, uh, at Pandora and and places like Um, Pets.com, which we'll talk about in a minute. Um, So, uh, I um, I I did that um, uh, for a couple of years, and and I won't dwell on it too much. The company got bought by Documentum. Um, I had a bunch of stock options. Um, It was actually, I mean, honestly, it's the only, like, kind of startup exit that ever had really any any positive outcome for me. Um, And... uh, um, Uh, And I walked away before most of that value really managed to make it into my bank account because I wanted to get back into consumer software because I missed being involved in consumer stuff so much. I just wasn't passionate about this information retrieval, document management, enterprise software stuff. Um, And uh, uh, the way that I ended up at Pets.com was um, uh, I had uh, had just gotten this puppy. And... um, (laughs) Uh, It's a true story. And uh, uh, for those of you who have never had a dog um, uh, or kids or anything, not that dogs and kids are the same, but I'm just saying, um, uh, there's lots of differences. Like, you can put a dog in the kennel when you don't want to be with the dog. Um, (laughs) um, The... um, uh, but when I, so I had this little puppy and it was like it was like the absolute center of my life. like it had just taken over suddenly like I went from just living this completely selfish life where all I did was like program and you know do whatever nerdy things I did. And uh, now I had this dog and I had to take care of it and you know like the dog wanted to go out, the dog had to go out. Um, and uh, so I was and I was really I that was the best thing ever. And, um, and so in the middle of all of that, I get this phone call from the people who had done, you don't know Jack with me and they said we're kind of we're putting the team back together um we're going to do this internet thing uh and it's it's called pets.com and like the combination of these people that I loved in consumer land um and I had this dog like suddenly it all I was like oh that's a really good idea that's you know I I don't like going to the pet store to get you know t- dog treats and dog food and so it'd be great if we could get delivered to my door um and, you know, it was 1998 or whatever when everything was all frothy and crazy, and eToys had just gone public for seven billion dollars of market cap or something. And you know, th- th- there were all these stats like people spend more money. This is so disturbing. People spend more money on their pets than they do on clothing and toys for their children combined. Um, so uh, the uh, so you know big giant twenty billion dollar U.S. market category, blah blah blah. So we started this thing. And um, it was 18 months from the founding to going public to going out of business. 18 months, um, which is just insane. Um, and uh, and the funny thing is that you would think um, that having walked away from this enterprise software thing where um, I had a bunch of options that were worth something to this this kind of really kind of catastrophic, glorious disaster – um, that I would look back on that and think that, that was a really, really bad decision. Um, but the truth is, is that it's actually not the case at all. I mean, I worked with absolutely remarkable people um, there um, who taught me tons. We worked, I mean, we worked harder there than I think I've ever worked on anything. I mean, I, I mean, it was unhealthy how hard we all worked. Um, you know, somewhere there might have been crazy .com, you know, comings and goings during that era but they certainly weren't having a best.com we were like working on like a pair of filing cabinets with a de- with a, like a door on top of it and just like chaos um, but uh uh and so i think it's so i look back on that incredibly glad that i left and it certainly having had that experience building a really large scale website in consumer space helped me you know um when we got around to, to building pandora years later um, uh, but I think mostly I love that experience because of two things. One, I, I, I did love the people. It was a great group of people. Um, and I was really passionate about it. I had this dog, and I loved the idea of the service. And, and I loved that for a while there, people loved it until we took their grandparents' pension. Um, <clears throat> uh, so, you know, at least for me, like, I think when I've made decisions that where I was sort of following my own sort of personal passions, the things that I'm really interested in, particularly when I was going to work with people that I really cared a lot about, the outcome was always good, even when it was maybe, you might look at it and say, wow, that was sort of a pressure, a disaster. Um, somewhat to that point, I went on after that to another enterprise software thing, which I won't bore you with the details of, although it was kind of like an AJAX platform before there was the acronym AJAX. Um, and uh, spent three years there, and here again, it was another one of these enterprise software things. I really wasn't that passionate about it. I had like a little bit of passion about like, you know making software to make programmers more productive and make better user interfaces and things, but Mostly, you know, my, my, you know, consumer products are kind of in my DNA. And um, I spent that whole period, you know, really anxious to to get to some other consumer offering. And finally, after this was kind of the nuclear winter period post the bubble bursting, and, and there just were no jobs and there was no investment money for people to start their own things. And so I was just grateful to have a job at all um i had friends in that period who went years and years and years super talented people like they couldn't find any work at all in technology um it's hard to believe that was just um you know seven or eight years ago um and um so finally in 2004 i was you know i couldn't do it anymore i you know if i figured gosh even if i can't get a job i'll you know i'll set up a laptop in my basement and write some software on my own it was kind of in that period where Flickr had just started and um uh delicious had just started and there were a handful of like kind of consumer oriented things being done and they were being done at a really really small scale they're being done in people's basements and you know sometimes finding um acquirers um you know went right from basement phase to acquisition phase and so i thought well um you know i'll start something in my basement i'll write all the software myself and we'll see where it goes and um as i started to think about like what i might want to do i started thinking about the problems in my life and and uh I had been somewhat late to the game, kind of um, ripping all of my CDs. I've been a bit of a CD collector my whole life. One of my sort of side passions is sort of collecting music. And um, uh, so I, for the first time, had all of this digital music um, in iTunes. And I just remember in that period being really disappointed about how little I could do with it. Sure, I could play it, but I couldn't learn more about the band. I couldn't see when they were coming to town. You couldn't buy the tracks. Um, You couldn't meet other people who shared Similar interests, um, and uh, and so I I started kind of developing some ideas around a kind of community oriented recommendation service that would kind of digest your iTunes catalog and tell you about bands that were coming to town and tell you about albums you were missing from your collection and introduce you to other people with similar tastes and int- introduce you to other bands and music that you might like based on your tastes and so I started developing that. It, actually, that idea was probably much more like Last FM than it's like Pandora. Um, And when I was in the process of kind of um, working on these ideas, I got introduced to um, uh, this guy, Tim Westergren, who had a little tiny company um, in Oakland called Savage Beast. Um, And uh, as we started, and this company was, I think there were about, i was like on the order of five or six engineers. There was a business development person, a couple of founders, and that was about it. So it was like nine or ten people. And... um, As it happened, they were looking for an engineering manager, somebody to come in and kind of hire some engineers and manage software development projects and things, which is something that I had done at that point in my career, but I had spent the last many years in a somewhat more kind of strategic role where I had much more influence over product direction and um, uh, was a member of the sort of executive staff and did a bunch of outbound stuff. And and this job felt very kind of constrained to me. but I really liked Tim, and I really liked the team of engineers, and I thought this, this thing, the Music Genome, that they had was a, um, was a really interesting kind of um, uh, approach to music recommendations, so just very briefly about the Music Genome Project. The idea, um, uh, which is still kind of the reptilian brain of Pandora to this day, is that we have a team of professional musicians who come to the office every day They put headphones on, and they listen to music one song at a time, and score each piece of music on somewhere between 200 and 500 musicological dimensions. So not just are there guitars, but what kind of guitars, how are the guitars played, what role does the guitar play in the overall composition. Um, and uh, what that allows us to do then is to find songs that are musically similar. So we can you know, kind of, if you imagine that we just collected two dimensions, maybe how breathy is the vocal, and how much falsetto is used. And we kind of, if you could take every song then and plot it in two dimensions. So here's breathy and here's falsetto. The really breathy stuff with lots of falsetto, there'd be a bunch of songs up here. The stuff that has falsetto but isn't breathy at all would be here, neither, and so on. And so you'd end up with this kind of constellation of songs in two-dimensional space. And the ones that are close together are similar, like here's all the ones that are breathy with the falsetto, and here's all the ones that haven't neither. And so by computing distances between points, you can say how similar songs are in this two-dimensional space of falsetto and breathiness. So we do that, exactly that, but we do it in 400 or 500 dimensions rather than just two dimensions. The math is actually very, very similar to the math that you'd use to do it in two dimensions. It wouldn't be that unfamiliar to you, but that's the basic idea. Um, so they had this piece of software that did that, and they had this team of musicians who who were analyzing songs. and And at the time, they they were trying to figure out what to do with it. I mean, they they had they did and they did, and the way they were figuring it out was they were going and talking to other people that had a relationship with music consumers. So they didn't want to be a consumer software company. Um, they wanted to power other consumer software. So like they, they went to AOL and helped make recommendation technology for AOL Music, and they went to best buy and best buy said well gosh what we really need is we need something to allow people to listen to music in the store before they make purchases so we need some kind of like kiosk could you make a kiosk for us and tim the founder would say like well we don't really know anything about kiosk but but if we made you a kiosk could we have music recommendations and they go yeah yeah that'd be great and so he'd come back and he'd say to the engineering team do you guys think you could make kiosks and the team would go yeah i think so um So at any rate, long story uh, longer, and I'll try to wrap up here because I know we're running out of time, but um, uh, 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 I joined the company in the spring of 2004, Um, uh, about two weeks after I joined um, our CEO joined Joe Kennedy, Um, and very quickly Tim, Joe, and I started talking about what kind of direct-to-consumer software company we'd like to be when when we grew up. And um, those conversations led to this idea that Joe had about being um, one-click personal radio, he called it. And um, uh, and within six months or so, we were off building what became Pandora.com. We changed the name of the company uh, um, somewhere along the way. And, um, you know, the... The rest is <laughs> the rest is just simply the last seven years of my life, um, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, but it's been you know incredibly gratifying and by far the the the, the, the most fun um, thing that I've done. Um, I think we're we're kind of running out of time, but I know there's going to be some, maybe hey, some questions I, and I things. So maybe time a, for a couple questions. <laughs> then... Yeah. yeah. Uh, what's your guy's overall philosophy? All the devices now being connected yeah. I know your release point earlier embrace that. Yep. There's a lot of people sort of ran scared. To- that's a yeah. yeah, that's a big dimension of kind of what Pandora is about these days. You know, when we um, when we launched Pandora for the iPhone um, unbelievably, it's only two and a half years ago, I think at the time we had on the order of like thirteen million listeners. Um, which is pretty good for, you know, three years or three and a half years of, of the life of the service. Um, but fast forward to, to today, we now have $65 million and a lot of that growth is on the backs of this explosion of, of mobile listening. Um, on the mobile side, you know, we um, kind of learned the hard way that the the part of the magic formula for success for Pandora is focusing on, on smartphones. We did all of these experiments with feature phones and Brew and J2ME, and they were never successful in any interesting way. Um, but something about the smartphone customer and the form factor, things like regular headphone jack, things like an expectation that it's a music device in addition to being a phone has been a real catalyst for us. And we do all of that development in-house. Um, interestingly, we've never really hired a mobile centric engineer. Everybody who works on our um, mobile products started as a web developer, a back end developer or something and kind of migrated over. So um, it. Uh, I, I think it's uh, it 's encouraging that that you can be successful with that model because it is terribly difficult to find people that have tons and tons of deep mobile specific experience but we found that 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 really talented engineers can make that transition pretty pretty easily um, and um Uh, On the consumer electronics side, Pandora is also available on more than 100 consumer electronics devices. that's like televisions and Blu-ray players and set-top boxes and those kinds of things. And um, we have a slightly different model in that case because there are all of these different platforms. What we basically have done is we have an API that we license to our partners. And so Samsung has a team of engineers that built the Pandora um, tuner, we call it, the software that lives in the Blu-ray player and in their televisions that that uses our API and all of our server-side infrastructure. Um, but they do the development and certification work, and then we they send us a sample and we run through a series of tests and sort of certify that it matches our you know our our standards. And so there's kind of a developer program and developer support and um, a certification process and documentation and sample code and stuff that goes along with that. But we don't have to actually do implementations for all of these different devices in the, in the typical case. we do so we have we have like um for 10 foot uis for things that run on televisions we have a reference design um that includes um a bunch of recommendations about how interactions should work it's actually a really tricky question though i I have to to say you know i mean tivo is a really good example tivo recently launched pandora it's been um, very very well received by the tivo audience and you know, TiVo has a really exceptional team of, of, you know, interaction designers, and they have a whole aesthetic and, you know, a, a set of standards for their platform. And on the one hand, it would be tempting for us to just tell TiVo, you can't use the standard TiVo interface when they activate Pandora because it's too hard to support. Um, we think it's confusing. It, it You made it for television. You didn't make it for music and so on. Um uh, but we haven't done that. We've said, you guys know your customer. They've been trained to use your product. You know, in a, you know, we're happy with you in- implementing the, the sort of TiVo look and feel against our service. Um, uh, You know, I think the same thing has happened with with Netflix and Apple TV. Netflix, in the context of Apple TV, looks more like Apple TV than it does like Netflix. Um, And I think that that's largely to everyone's benefit. It's to the consumer's benefit, it's to Netflix's benefit, it's to Apple's benefit. I think everybody wins. Um, uh, And so if we were to ever end up on Apple TV, I I think that we would would likely be very open to doing the same. Um, I think where it gets a little bit confusing is, like, when we're on a Blu-ray player... Where it's sort of like, you know, Blu-ray Manufacturer X from Korea. Like, like, they don't have a strong sense of user interface design. All of the bits and pieces of their, their you know, stuff looks different from all the other pieces. In that scenario, for us to just say, you know your customers better than we do, you, it, design something probably isn't the best answer. And so we're still kind of sorting out the, like, when do we really assert ourselves and when do we let. And I think, I think unfor- the unfortunate answer is, it depends. Yeah. Would you say that the in-product the audible product makes it more difficult or easier? To um, you know, one of the really difficult um, design constraints for us is that we think that part of the reason that Pandora has been successful and something that we were trying to to do from the very beginning was to emulate the the best of traditional radio. Um, we never really thought of ourselves as a website. We thought of ourselves as a as a um, as a radio service, and radio is really simple. You press a button and music comes out. And so um, on the one hand, uh, it means that you don't have very much user experience surface to work with, really, like, you know, presets, pick a channel, listen, turn it up, turn it down, pause it, skip, a few little things. Um, and But as soon as you start to move outside of that, it stops feeling like radio and starts feeling like a website or an application. Um, but the good news is is we have a bunch of constraints that help keep us honest, but for those of you who are designers, you know the more constraints you put in a problem, the harder it is in many cases. And so we're constantly sort of wrestling with this, how do we keep it really simple, but continue to innovate and expand the capabilities of the system and add new content and those kinds of things without um, violating the, the, the core tenets of the product. We'll get to have more can ask them later, but let's thank Thank you so much for having me. It was great.